Thank you so much, Sheila. Well, let me start off by saying, Dios te bendiga en el nombre de Jesucristo el Señor. How, how, how did I do, Kimberly? Okay, she didn't have to translate that. For the rest of you, God bless you in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. I am blessed to be with you. You know, I want, before I get into what I'm going to teach, which is some questions, uh, I want to talk about how God designed for the church to get together. And it struck me uh, as I was listening to the prayers and then to the words that God spoke to us. When the church gets together, God wants to be able to speak to the needs of that group at that time. That's what the manifestations do. They are to this group of believers. God doesn't have just one set of messages that he sends out on August 25th. Wherever you are on planet Earth, this is what you get. No. There are hearts in this room that he knows and loves. So when we have speaking in tongues with interpretation and prophecy, that is God speaking to us as a local group of believers to our hearts. You might have heard something in that that you thought God just said for you. Everybody else, glad you're here, but that was for me. That's one part of what we do on a Sunday. The other thing that God wants done when the church gets together is for his word to be taught. His word is eternal in its application. Whereas when God speaks by way of the manifestations of the Spirit, that is for that time, for that moment, for that group. You come back next week, they won't be the same. Because even if all of you came back and nobody else was added, we'd all still be in a different place. So that's how God works that. It just kind of struck me today. Well, anyway, this is part three of a series on kingdom finances. I had designed it to have two parts. Uh, it's going to have four. And uh, I want to answer two questions that have been posed to me in different ways by a number of different people. Now, I would suggest, if you haven't heard them, that you listen to the first two teachings on kingdom finances. But if this is your first exposure, I'm going to give you a quick tour. How's that? These teachings on kingdom finances are part of a larger series that we're going to be doing here at Grace on life in the kingdom. Because the standards, the principles, the truths of the kingdom of God are different than what you've grown up with. And not only are they different, they're better. They work better. And very few Christians even really fully and truly embrace the wisdom of God and his truth when they conduct their day-to-day -day lives. And the result is they don't see all that God has planned for them. I have seen so many Christians frustrated because they will read a verse, a promise in the Bible that excites them. But then they look in the mirror and that's not what they see. We get past that disconnect by applying the wisdom that goes along with the promises that he's put in his word. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. It says, for the Lord gives wisdom. Now, he's not the only source of wisdom. He's just the only source of true wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And you know, the thing about God is, he does not force his wisdom or his will upon us. He does not impose 
his will upon his children. We don't have to include God in our finances. We don't have to include God in our health. We don't have to include God in our marriages. We don't have to. But if we choose to, things get a lot better quickly. And these promises in God's word, Christians read the promises correctly. But what we miss sometimes is that all of the promises in God's word come with instructions. And if you want to see the promise unfold in your life, then you simply follow the instructions that are in his word. Now, we have been looking at prosperity. And the instructions for prosperity within the kingdom of heaven, the instructions in God's word, are pretty straightforward. And they come under three basic headings. Work heartily, spend wisely, give generously. That's the wisdom of God when it comes to financial prosperity. Now, he has a lot to say about these three points. I have been covering in these last two sessions, giving generously. We're also going to cover working heartily and spending wisely. I hadn't originally intended to cover those two, but they were also a series of questions that I was asked, so we're going to do them. But today I want to answer other questions that have come to the fore because of this subject on God's wisdom. But I'm going to summarize what we covered the first two teachings on giving and receiving. Proverbs really summarizes what God had to say about this, and it's in Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 9. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. That verse sets the stage. Giving, we choose to give to God to honor Him, and what we choose to give is of the first fruits of our produce, first fruits of our income in our culture, because that's what represents trust. If you give God your leftovers, is that trusting? There's no trust involved in leftovers. It's like my daughters when they were growing up. They'd give dad what they didn't want to eat on their plate. They didn't, they didn't give dad part of what they had initially on their plate. But like, I was the garbage disposal. If there was anything left over, dad got it. Let's read verse 10. So if we honor God, if we give of our first fruits, then, then, that indicates a cause and effect. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting forth with new wine. So we honor God, we give to honor God because he is the source of all of our blessings. It is a recognition of what God is to us. And we give willingly because that's what God wants. He doesn't want to impose upon us. And we do that to care for his people, for the kingdom of God and the works of the ministry. Now, That first teaching on giving and receiving centered on the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we saw that the standard was to give a tithe, which is just an old word for a tenth part of your income. That was the benchmark for giving and the benchmark for blessings. Our second teaching turned to the New Testament. And we found that the word tithe is not mentioned in the New Testament, at least not in those portions written to the church. I have to tell you, Our New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, right? But the actual New Covenant did not start with the birth of Christ. The New Covenant didn't start until the end of the Gospels, after Christ was crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So when I speak of the word tithe not being used in the New Testament, I mean after the cross, okay? 
Because you might say, well, Bob, it's in Matthew. I read it in Matthew. You're right, you did. But Matthew really was a part of the old covenant that Christ was fulfilling. Once it was fulfilled, we don't see the word tithe mentioned in the New Testament. What we do see is lots of giving. But that giving is not limited to or governed by the tithe. It's not governed by law. Everything that you read about in the book of Acts and in the church epistles goes beyond the Old Testament and it has a corresponding increase in the blessings that God offers. Now you may have noticed, unlike some churches, when we receive an offering, we don't call it the tithe. We don't say, you know, present your tithes. And the reason we don't say that is because that's an Old Testament concept. What we call it is an abundant sharing because we honor God out of the abundance that he has blessed us with. That's, what, that's why we call it what we do. It's not out of obligation. It's not out of some mechanical religious practice. Actually, what we're after and what I tried to cover is we want to give by faith. And when you do anything by faith, that means you're responding to something that God has said. So God has said things in his written word, right? We can respond by faith in his written word. God can talk to you directly as his son or daughter, and you can respond in faith to what God tells you directly by revelation. Now I want to look at uh, the New Testament standard for giving, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. And it's not as though... You know, the tithe and the blessings of the tithe are still in force, but God doesn't deal with us in accordance with law and in accordance with regulations. Look how he does deal with us. The point is this. Don't you love it when God just, okay, you wonder what God's talking about? Okay, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God blesses us in accordance to how we trust him. That's why giving of your first fruits is an indication of trust for God. And you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Each one must give as it is recorded in Leviticus. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for what kind of a giver does God love? He likes a cheerful one. And when you, re- when you understand giving from God's perspective, that it is honoring him, that it is a response to what he's done for you, then it's cheerful. And we decide. How do we decide? By faith. Either by the instructions in the written word or God working within our heart directly to show us. And what happens then? And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. God is able But we can just stop there and just do a teaching on that. He's able to make all grace abound toward you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound to every good work. See, the emphasis in the New Testament is on partnership, not on obligation. Now, as I said, the blessings of the tithe, God will still bless the tithe just as he's always promised to. But if you give more than that, he blesses more than that. That's what he's saying here. The emphasis is on choosing to include God. That's my encouragement to you. Include God. Go to him and ask him how to include him. Now, what I'm really going to talk about this morning are two questions that have been asked to me several ways by several different people. Not all of them local. Some of them 
people who listened on the stream and wrote in, hey, we talked about this, what about dot, dot, dot. So here are the two questions I want to answer today. How should our offerings be used, and where do I give my offerings? Now, first on, how should our offerings be used? Our goal is to live by faith, right? Our goal, then, is to give by faith, and we take as a church, as a ministry, the same approach to what we do with the offerings. We want to use them in accordance with faith. We want to use God's resources according to God's direction, which means according to what he has outlined in his scriptures or what he might reveal directly to people who are uh, responsible to make these decisions. We start, and I'm going to start with the first example. We looked at this from Genesis. The first example of anybody giving a tithe was in the Old Testament. It was Abraham. And Abraham presented a tithe to king and priest Melchizedek. Let's look at it from Hebrews. We read it in Genesis. Now we're going to read it in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. So the first recorded giving, the first recorded tithe in the Bible was Abraham presenting it to a priest of the Most High God. Priests carry out God's work. We today have a priest. In fact, we have a high priest. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. And he is, not surprisingly, called a high priest in the line of Melchizedek. Very interesting. Hebrews 7.17 For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then I threw in verse 22 because I like it. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 7.22 Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. So the first tithe went to a priest. Today our priest, our high priest is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And it is Christ's work that is the focal point of what we do with the resources God makes available. So how does that fig- how does the church figure into this? We learn what God wants done with offerings today by first looking at what he directed people to do with offerings in the scripture. And we're first going to look at the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at the early church. So there's three basic ways that the offerings made in the Old Testament were utilized. First, in the Old Testament, offerings were used to care for the temple and those who served in the temple. Let's read this from the book of Numbers. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. He was the high priest. Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me. Who were the contributions made to? God. Who was charged with utilizing them? Aaron. All the consecrated things of the people of Israel, I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. Then in verse 21, let's read what happens next. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, 
that they do their service in the tent of meeting. Remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel. All of the tribes were given land in the promised land. They were given an inheritance in the promised land. The Levites were not. The Levites were not given any land in Israel. The Levites were dedicated to serve God. They took turns serving him at the temple. They served him in the local communities. And therefore, God said that they were to be cared for out of the tithes that were given to God. The contributions to me, God said. And then, what were the Levites to do? Look at verse 26. Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites... When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So the Levites, out of their first fruits, they then also tithe. They also gave to God. So that's the first usage. That's that's a pretty common usage. People get that. The second usage of the offerings in the Old Testament was unique to the Old Testament. And that is, offerings were used to provide for the three pilgrimage feasts. God told the children of Israel that three times a year, at Passover, at Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, they had to present themselves in Jerusalem. Well, how do you think things are going to be handled in Jerusalem with that great influx of people? You know what God told them to do? Okay, bring your tithe with you to the feast. And that's what's going to pay for the feast, the multitude of sacrifices. It was also going to pay for the Levites to enjoy the feast. That was what God did. Now, we don't have these kinds of feasts in the Christian church. They were settled with Jesus Christ. So God doesn't tell us to go anywhere. Although I have been open for him to send me to Tahiti for a conference... Hasn't happened so far, but, you know, if he would, that's, I'd be okay with that. Here's the third thing that offerings were used for in the Old Testament. They were used to care for the destitute. Now, destitute means without the means to provide for yourself. That's what it's talking about. If you could work, you know what God says you ought to do? Work. If you have family members that are in need, you know what the Bible says you ought to do? Take care of them. But others were truly destitute. In their culture, it was a little different than ours, but there were others. So look what God says in Deuteronomy. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. Now, isn't this interesting? God says, okay, in the third year, here's what you do with your tithe. You leave it in your community. So apparently the other two years of tithes were enough to take care of the temple, I guess, right? You shall lay it up within your towns, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. You give, and God blesses. So, what we read from Scripture, in the Old Testament, the offerings were used to care for the temple and those who served it. It was used to care for the expenses of the special feasts. And finally, it was used to care for the destitute. When you look at the church, we're going to see examples of the same things with the exception of the feasts, 
which we are no longer commanded to keep. So, the offerings in the church are used in the same basic fashion that we see in the Old Testament. These included support of the work of the ministry and the leaders and servants within the ministry, as well as the destitute. Let's first go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is about the offerings used for support of leaders and teachers. Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, you know what's interesting is, Paul is saying this because the Corinthians were questioning whether the Apostle Paul should receive from their offerings. Now, you and I would say, what, the Apostle Paul? Well, duh, of course he should be supported. But not everybody agreed with that, so God had Paul write this. Paul uses an Old Testament example followed by a command of the Lord. And here the word Lord means Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself has commanded Paul to say, this matter from the Old Testament is carrying on into the New. Now, who in the church is to receive this? Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Again, what is God doing here? He's taking the Old Testament and showing him this applies still in the New Testament. Now, all elders in the church should be honored and respected for that role. But for those elders and leaders whose ministries require them to devote their life to the work and labor of the ministry, they get what the Bible calls a double or an additional honor, which simply means that the church cared for them financially. That's all that that means. So, in addition to those leaders in the church, as works grew in size, there were at times needs for larger places for the church to gather together. Now, the early Christians had the temple area, at least for a few years. They were able to gather at the temple on Solomon's porch. That's where they met. That's where Jewish groups met. That's what they did. That eventually was taken away for them. Homes were commonly available to meet in. However, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, homes were small and dark. They weren't like our homes today. So they were not always the best place that people could meet. Paul, when you read the book of Acts, ordinarily started in the synagogues until he got kicked out. And then let me show you one place what happened when he got kicked out. See, Christians were forbidden from erecting buildings for the first three centuries of the Christian church. They were prohibited by law from erecting buildings because Christianity was not a recognized religion and therefore, and it was also at times a persecuted religion. So they couldn't build a building like all these pagans could. Homes did not, were not always suitable. They got kicked out of the temple. They got kicked out of the synagogue. You know what the first thing they did was? They modified homes to be 
meeting centers, which meant you'd have a slightly larger home, but on the inside, instead of all your bedrooms and stuff, would be a meeting place for the church. That's how they first handled that. After Christianity became legal in the 4th century, Christians were allowed to make buildings. And what they built, this is something important to understand, they did not build sacred spaces. They did not build temples. The pattern that the early church used for their first legal meeting places were based on the Roman basilica. Now, how many have heard the word basilica? Ordinarily today, we associate that word with the Catholic Church, a large building in the Catholic Church. The Roman Basilica was simply a public meeting hall. The Christian Church built buildings based on Roman public meeting halls, because that's what they were doing, just like we do here. But look what was done in Ephesus. This is before it was legal for them to do this. It says, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This was a school building. How would you like the principal of your school's name to be Tyrannus? It doesn't sound like you want to get sent to this guy's office. Anyway, they continued meeting in the school of Tyrannus, the hall of Tyrannus, for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Years ago, we used to rent out a room in the College of DuPage. Paul used the school, we used the school. Now we have this place that we can use, which we're blessed about. Now, as the church continued to grow, and even earlier on than buildings, they had to provide for those within the Christian community who were destitute. And the first group were widows. That's the first group that's addressed. We see this in chapter 6 of the book of Acts before the Christian church even moved out of Jerusalem. Very interesting. And by the fact that the church was doing this so early in the Christian era, it shows you that even by Acts chapter 6, the Christian church recognized and viewed themselves as separate from the Jews who had chosen not to believe in Christ. All Christians at this time in Acts 6 were Jewish in background. But some were Jewish who had taken Jesus as the Messiah. Some were Jewish who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But the early church recognized at this point that they were different and that they handled their finances and their destitute separately from the rest of the Jews. Now, widows in the ancient world were often, as a matter of fact, they were usually destitute. While widows today are not usually destitute within our culture. Timothy, or Paul, in the book of Timothy, clarifies how to care for widows, which you can use as an example for people who are destitute. Okay, so this is going to show you how God does this. Verse 3 of chapter 5, honor widows who are truly widows. Well, what do you mean truly widows? Her husband's only half dead? Is that what we would? No, that's not what it's talking about. Truly widows, he's going to explain. 
But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is what honoring your father and mother looks like for those of us who are adults. You know, in Ephesians 6.1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. They are to obey their parents. But to those of us who are adults, what do we do? We honor them. And that simply doesn't mean we, it does mean that we extend respect, but it means even more. It means that we also care for them in their old age so that they are not just a ward of the state or a ward of the church. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled to be taken care of by the church if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Those were the qualifications that God had for widows who were truly widows, meaning they were destitute. The church was to take care of those who had been faithful in devoting their lives to the gospel, but were without any means of support. Now, God also at times, and we're going to read about this, directed the church to care for church members who were afflicted by famine. And that would usually mean churches in another area of the world than you. Because if it was famine in your area, you'd be afflicted as well, right? But what if we in Naperville are doing fine, but the saints in the Central Valley of California are undergoing a drought and can't eat? That's what this is talking about. One of the ones happened in uh, the first century in Acts chapter 11. It took place in Antioch, which is in current day Turkey. And it was about a famine that was happening in Judea. Verse 28 of chapter 11. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. He was a prophet. And signified by the spirit that there should be great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Historically, we can pinpoint this because it's described for us. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, how did the church discover this need? Did they read crop reports? No. Did they study the newspapers? No. This need was brought to their attention by God. Because God wanted the church in Antioch to help the church in Judea. And so how did he arrange that? He had a prophet tell them about it. In the church today, the offerings are used to care for those who serve in a capacity that goes beyond what they would be able to do simply as a volunteer. It also pays for buildings. It pays for study materials. And finally... It is used for emergency relief. That's really what we call it now in the church. We call it emergency relief when people have something that happens. And for that, as you'll see, we usually look to God for revelation as to how that is to be handled. Now, next what I want to do is look at where do I give my offerings? This is a good question. You gave today. Well, what is that used for? I wanted to answer that question. Why, why do you give where you give? Let's take a look. Where do you give your abundant sharing? Now, in the Old Testament, it was pretty simple. It went every, for two years, it went to Jerusalem. 
For one year, it stayed in your local town and was administered by the Levites. Very simple, cut and dry, written in scripture, no deviation. Church is much more fluid than that. Christianity is much more fluid than that. Now, Acts 4 gives us an example of how early offerings were handled. Again, Acts 4, churches still hasn't left Jerusalem yet. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's what I want. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now, it's very interesting. They had lands, plural, houses, plural. It makes no sense for me to sell my house to help John, because you know what? Then John has a house, and I don't have a house. But what if, you know, what if there are people within the community who have an abundance beyond what they need? They can choose. They can choose. They're not forced to. They can choose to share of that abundance. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now this, Acts chapter 4, early on, and what are they doing? They're laying it at the apostles' feet, which was the leadership of the church. Again, they had noticed that we're no longer the Jews under the temple. They didn't say send it to the temple account. They said do it this way. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and they would then use it as God directed the apostles did not use these offerings to buy gold-plated chariots and large villas. Sadly, there are Christian leaders today who abuse the gifts of God's people and do just that. Thankfully, there are really only very few, and the vast, vast majority of men and women throughout the world are endeavoring to steward and utilize God's resources just the way he says it in his word. How about today? How do we apply the scriptures today? First, here's what you're going to do. You're going to decide in your heart what you want to give to honor God. You're going to do that. You would do it to do it by faith. You do it in accordance with what you understand from the scriptures and what God might work within you directly. Then you offer the gift in accordance with his word. Usually that would be to the church, to the ministry, or to the minister that might be serving you. And I say all three because there are ministers who serve in the body of Christ who are not part of a local church, right? At times, you might present what you have decided in your heart to offer to God directly to an individual in need. And we're going to see that shortly. The church then spent the offerings, those that were presented to the church, in accordance with God's instructions. Now here's another, these are questions, these are all questions people were asking me. Can I give my offering directly to someone other than the church? Yes. But for your gift to honor God, it has to be for the same things that God has outlined for the church. Andrew McGarry, I was talking about this to Andrew McGarry, many of you know him. He told me he was out once with a number of believers, and one of the believers announced, I'm going to use my abundant sharing to buy everybody a round of beer. Okay. I had somebody tell me once that they were going to use their abundant sharing so that they could get, have a nicer wedding reception for their son. 
Neither of them mentioned that there was any revelation involved with those decisions. You know, it's not that I care what people do with their money. I honestly don't. But let's not try to spiritualize our spending choices. And if you're going to honor God, if this is going to honor God, let's use it to honor God. He uses it to uh, take care of those who serve in the ministry. He uses it to care for the destitute. That's how he uses it. So if you believe God is moving you to give directly to an individual, then you would, that's fine, but you would use the same standards that God uses. And that's why I said for us, when we do this as a church, we look to God for revelation. See, here's what happens, and here's what the problem is. And this is what, you know, I've been in this for like over 40 years. Often people think that their need is money. I need money. But God may have something else in mind for them. And if you give them money, then they're never going to learn the lesson that God wants to show them if they trust him. And then you know what they're going to do? They're going to look at you as God. They're going to look at the affluent members of the church as though they're their God. That's not the way it works, folks. At times, people want God's money, but they don't want his advice. And, you know, I have seen people, you know, because as a leader in the church for the last 40 years, this has come across my radar screen a lot. We've, we make a lot of emergency gifts to people. In fact, we set aside a portion of our budget every month to do just that. So I have to make these decisions with the board on a number of different occasions. But many times what God has shown me, something will come across my radar screen, and sometimes God will say no. Don't give them anything. Now, you might think that's harsh unless you understand what God wants to do for people. He's not interested in Band-Aids. I've had, because I ask him. Sometimes he tells me, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he'll just say no, and that's what I go with. But, you know, I usually ask, you know, is there a reason? Because this seems kind of good to me. And at the times that God has chosen to show me, It has always been because those people were in need because they failed and rejected the wisdom of God in their life prior to this. And what he wants them to do is start to trust him and start to trust him. That's what he's looking at. God has given us free will. And depending on the choices we make with that free will, we either receive the blessings from God or the consequences from this world. When you look at the kinds of situations that God addresses, like widows and famines, you understand God wants to, he is generous in taking care of those who are in need. Whenever this comes up in the church, we always look to God for revelation first. Now, here's another question. More than one person came up and said that, well, you know, I was taught that you give your tithe to the church, and if you want to give more than your tithe, you can give that to other organizations or you can give that to to individuals. Well, it doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. I don't look at my giving and separate it out between what's the first 10% and what's not. I just decide in my heart what I'm going to give. Where this comes from, and I've heard it myself, Usually it comes from conferences that I have attended, like what we would call a parachurch ministry, somebody like Todd White, 
or uh, things like that, where they say, look, I what they're trying to get across is they don't want to take resources from the local church, so they say it this way. And you know what? God may have worked within them to do that so that people understood it. You just can't make a rule out of that because that's a law that's not in Scripture. God may direct you to, you know, let God, let's walk by faith and allow God to do that. So today in the church, offerings are used to care for those who serve in a capacity beyond what they could do as volunteers. And it pays for meeting rooms, for study materials, AV equipment. It also is used for emergency relief according to the standards in God's word. And you know, as a church leader and someone who's been a church leader for a while, I don't rely on people to give so that the church can function. I rely on God to provide the resources for the church to function. Now, I understand that ordinarily what God does is he inspires people to give, and they then give by faith. I get that. But there's a subtle difference between looking at individuals to supply a need and looking at God to supply a need. And you need to do we do that for the church. You need to do that for your life. Your boss isn't the one who supplies your need. And if you look at your boss as the one who supplies your need, you're going to be disappointed at some point. It's always from Christ. And prosperity in the kingdom of God always comes down to faith. Everything in the kingdom of God comes down to faith. We want to walk by faith. We want to live by faith. We want to give by faith. We want to spend by faith. We want to work by faith. All too often what people choose is what is comfortable, familiar, and reasonable to them. God has called us to much more. A life of faith. A life of faith is seldom comfortable, familiar, or reasonable. But it is exciting. And I want to exhort you to give that a try. Faith involves risk. You spell faith R-I-S-K. Faith involves risk. And we need to have a willingness to adjust our life and our priorities to match God's. The blessings are enormous. So why don't you all please stand. We're going to close in prayer, okay? Before we do that, I want to remind you that we will not be here next Sunday over Labor Day weekend. So pray with whoever you're near. How's that? So let me close this in prayer here. Father God, thank you for giving us clear directions in your word about all of life, about our finances, about our families, our marriages, our jobs, our relationships. Thank you, God, that you do not leave us without your wisdom. And I pray, God, that as you work within each of us in every area of life, that we will walk out and see a life like Christ, a life free from stress, free from fear, and full of joy. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You guys are the best.